0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning. We're going to look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Uh, happy 2019 to everybody. Uh, I hope that you and your family had a wonderful holiday, had an uh, opportunity to to relax, to enjoy your time together, to eat a good meal, right, and, and to be able to, to bring in the new year. We have this, this tendency, right, we have this tendency to focus on the future right about the time of New Year's, don't we? Right, we, we come up with all these resolutions that we're, that we're going to try to keep to ensure that the upcoming year is going to be the best year that we've ever had. So we focus on the future during this time and, and coming up with resolutions, I to be honest, I don't I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing to do, right? Many of us make resolutions and they're they're good, they're healthy, right? That we're gonna eat healthy, we're gonna eat more salads, right? We're gonna drink more water. Two resolutions I can honestly say I have never made in my life, but that's neither here nor there, right? We're gonna go to the gym more often. For a lot of people, it's I'm gonna start coming to to church more often. We're going to read the Bible as a family. We're going to pray together more often. And these are the resolutions that we make. And they're not bad, right? They're often very good, but the the issue lies with the fact that they generally do not last, right? They do not last. Last. And what we're going to see this morning in this text in Romans chapter 12 is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul, not for, not for a resolution, but for a particular lifestyle that is to characterize a Christian. Right? To have a singular, wholehearted, whole bodied devotion to God. And I think that texts like these are helpful for us regardless of the time of the year. That it is, whether it's the beginning of January, mid-June, or the end of the year. Because it refocuses our hearts and our minds of what our life is supposed to look like. Wholehearted, full-bodied devotion to God. But the question is, how, right? Where do we begin in this walk? What is the secret to sustain devotion to God. Isn't that the question that most people are asking, most good church-going people are asking about this time every year? All right? How do I not fall into the same rut that I always do? I start well for January, kind of slip a little bit in February, and by mid-March we've even forgotten that we've even made a resolution at all. But it's not a secret, Right? Paul clearly tells us what we are supposed to be doing as a Christian. The issue is, though it's clear, it's not easy. And the first step to persevering in our walk with Christ in 2019, as a church and as an individual, and then beyond, is the renewal of our minds. Because you see, until you get a glimpse of the glory of the Almighty God in His holiness and in His majesty that is so clearly displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will continue to fall into the same spiritual rut that you have always been. So until you get a glimpse of who God is and spend time dwelling on who He is in His Word, we will continue to fall back. We will continue to live in the same way, and oftentimes it looks exactly like the rest of the world. And I don't know about you, but I want far more for myself as an individual and for North Roanoke as a church than that. I want far more for you guys than that. So let's look at the passage this morning Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 again. Hopefully by now you are there. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. And I pray right now that you would speak through your word. Focus our hearts on who you are. Father, we are here for you. Eliminate all self-seeking desires within us and fix our eyes on you. That's something that only you can do. So, Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word for the glory of your name, that we might be edified, that we might be sanctified for your use. We love you and we praise you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. The first point I want us to see this morning is that it's the character and work of God that is to propel Christians forward in their daily walk with Christ. So it's the character and the work of God all right, there's the emphasis that is to propel Christians in their daily walk with Christ. Look down at the passage. "I appeal to you therefore. All right? Therefore, all right? This passage acts as a type of hinge passage for the book of Romans. Alright, it is, it is the hinge that is really connecting the first section of Romans, which is chapters 1 through 11, which is very doctrinal, which is very theological to the more pragmatic or practical section of chapters 12 through 16. So this, these two verses that we're looking at acts as a type of hinge that connects these two. So Paul saying, all that doctrine that I taught you, all that theology that is great, this is how you practically live that out in your daily walk. It's not just for your head, it's meant to be lived out. And this passage really connects these two ideas. But look at how he begins, I appeal to. To you, therefore, right, He is appealing to them, all right. This word "appeal" isn't necessarily a a bad word choice, uh, but in but in the Greek, it's a little bit more. There's a little bit more emphasis behind it. There's a little bit more weight into this appeal, all right. Uh, the NAS, the New American Standard, which I'm sure Daniel's getting a kick out of, uh, uses the word "urge," and I think that is a better translation of this particular. ...word as he, again, makes faces at me. Alright, but that's the the idea that Paul is using here. He's urging them. He's urging them to see. So Paul, as an apostle, right, as that level of leadership... ...has every right to command the believers to act in a certain way. Alright, you see that throughout his letters, right? This is what you were supposed to do. In fact, we're going to see that in a moment. But oftentimes, what he chooses to do instead is to present the facts, if you will. All right, this is reality, and because this is true, this is the way you are supposed to live. All right, so he's urging them, he's not commanding them, but he's, he's pushing them in the right direction. All right? If you've ever played uh, a sport, especially in, in high school, if you played football, baseball, basketball, if you ran track, any of these, any of these sports, you know that uh, in the off-season, there's a lot of times workouts right, that, that football you have workouts, whether that's in the morning or when that's in the afternoon, and the, the coach can tell you, these are voluntary practices, right, these are voluntary workouts, but you better be there, right, they're voluntary, you can come or you don't have to come, but it's in your best interest that you show up, right, some of you work in an office and you have charity events that you're going to or a Christmas party that your office is throwing, and you don't Necessarily have to go, but you have to go, right? So, kind of that urging, that appeal, all right, if you want to play for me, you need to come to these workouts. That, that's kind of the way that Paul's using this. Like, in, in view of everything I've just said, this is really the way that like you, you can make your own decision. You can live out what you believe, or you can be stagnant. But in view of everything, there's really no choice involved. Right? This is the way that you are to live. And we cannot miss the fact, look back down, I appeal to you therefore brothers. Alright, so two things. The first of all, that, that shows that Paul when he's speaking to them is not trying to flex his authority here, right? He's not saying, I'm an apostle, therefore listen to me. He's saying, guys, you're my Brothers, I'm speaking to you as a brother. I want what's best for you. But in the same way, it's a reminder, because he calls them brothers, these are fellow believers. right? These are Christians. It is people who have come to faith in Christ that have been brought from death to life. Now, why is this important? It's a reminder that those who are not followers of Christ are, will never be able to properly worship God. They cannot be devoted to God. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says again, this is just a few chapters before our passage, Paul writes, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, look at this, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. No matter how moral your friend is that is an unbeliever, he or she will never be able to please God. Until God brings an individual from death to life, that person will never be able to uh, to please God because they are hostile to God. They hate God and will never be devoted to Him. But Paul is addressing believers here. And if you are a Christian this morning, right? I'm not going to pretend even in a room this size that everybody here is a Christian. But if you are a Christian, then he is talking to you. That we are to live lives that are devoted wholly to God. But look at how he appeals to them. Again, not flexing authority. Do you see what his appeal is based on? I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God god by the mercies of god that that phrase that paul is using uh, is meant not just as a reference to the previous kind of passage of romans but really to the to the book as a whole the first 11 chapters are just full of god's mercies on full display for everyone to see right and paul begins with our sinfulness right not necessarily the the place that a lot of us like to begin Right? We don't like to begin with the fact that we're sinners before God. But that's exactly where he begins. He begins with our sinfulness. The fact that everyone is a sinner and is dead set against God. And it's only out of that place that he is able to tell of the salvation that's found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he shows that God simultaneously shows his own justice. Right? We see that in, in chapter 3. Right, God's justice in pouring out His wrath on the Son for sin. And His mercy in justifying the sinner that deserved that wrath. But not only His mercies, They they, they don't just end at our justification, our right standing before God. But they continue on, right? In our sanctification as we begin to live as a Christian, to live in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. Right, That we live in that way, becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And then there's also the assurance that is given by God to those who believe, so that Paul in Romans chapter 8 can say that their glorification, which is a future event, is just as certain to happen as their justification, which is in the present. He can speak of glorification, again, which is a future event in the past tense, as if it's already happened, because it is sure. And all of these, these theological understandings leads Paul in chapter 11... Look down at verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. Paul just exudes praise to God like a fountain can't help but overflowing. He writes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Let me ask you, when's the last time that we... That you personally read a passage of scripture and that was your reaction. When's the last time that you read a passage and and you just thought, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. You see, the the issue with American Christianity as a whole is not that we can't attract a crowd. Not that we can't have people show up or that we can't put on a good show. Just to put the matter bluntly, the the greatest issue facing the American church today is quite simply that we do not know God. Oh, we may be able to list some facts about Him, like we can talk about the stats of our favorite baseball player or football player. But we don't know Him. We may be able to talk about His love and mercy and grace, but have you ever stopped to think about the fact that He did not have to show that? He didn't have to be that way to us. Look back down at Romans chapter 11, verse 34. Again, this is immediately preceding our passage. Paul continues after his his praise, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is not obligated to us in any way, shape, or form. God owes us nothing. As soon as we start believing that God is obligated to be merciful to us, then you stop talking about mercy altogether. God is not obligated to do anything. You cannot put God in your debt. Your attendance at church on Sunday morning adds nothing to Him. We need God. He does not need us. And because that is true, we should be blown away at His mercies to us. Because until we understand who we are in comparison to God that we are sinners before a holy God who has every right to punish us eternally in hell for our sins, then we will not live for him in the way that we should. The mercy of God is only sweet for those who understand that they really don't deserve it. So you look at your, your life, your sin, your struggles. You look at the holiness of God. You know, you don't deserve that mercy. And then you look at Christ on the cross, dying for sin, buried, and resurrecting so that you can be reconciled to God. That should blow us away. And it should, as Paul is going to continue to say, lead us to live in a certain way because any true believer. And thinking on the mercies of God would not want to live for anything lesser. So, dwelling on who God is and what He has done should lead us to praise Him and to push us, propel us along in our daily walk with Christ. It's not our own effort, it's not I'll do better next time, it's God. And in view of His mercy, that leads to a transformed life. Paul continues. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So because of the overwhelming mercies of God, Christians are to present their bodies as sacrifices to God. And this is our spiritual worship. Not necessarily just coming to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday. We call that worship. But our spiritual worship is being wholly devoted to Him, inside this building and outside of this building. And he gives three separate adjectives. We're going to look at them quickly on what this sacrifice is to look like. Living, holy, and acceptable to God. Each of these are adjectives describing the sacrifice. Now, to begin, a sacrifice is something that most first century readers of this uh, letter would have understood completely, right? But it's a little bit foreign to us. We're not as familiar Right, they've been in the temple, whether they were a Jew or a Greek or a Roman. Right, They've been in the temple. They've looked on as an animal was slaughtered and, and worshipped as a sacrifice to, to appease a deity. Right? But as Christians, right, we no longer have to do that. Why? Because Christ is our sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice, so that we no longer have to make a sacrifice for sin because it's covered on the cross. Right? So Paul, Paul shifts the focus away from an animal, shifts the focus away from killing another, again, animal or even an individual, and he describes what a Christian is to live like, and he calls that the sacrifice that we are to make, right? Sins have been paid for, no other animal needs to die, but we are to give ourselves as a sacrifice holy to God and in service to Him. We are to daily live for Christ because He died and rose again. That's our spiritual sacrifice. And that's, what, that's part of what Paul means in the adjective of living. We are to live daily for Him. And the reason we can live for Him is because we've already died with Christ. right? Romans 6, verse 8. We died with Christ, and because that is true, we are now able to live for Him. This is something that, again, only characterizes believers. No matter how moral an unbeliever may be, until they are brought from death to life, they will never be able to worship God. No matter how sincere they look. Because they are hostile to Him. So the first adjective of the sacrifice is that we need to be living. We need to be regenerated. We need to come to faith in Christ in order to be a sacrifice. And the next two connect with each other very well, which is probably why the translation reads as it does, right? Christians are to live lives of holiness. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, verse 48, to be perfect as the Father is perfect. Now, there's two caveats for that that I think we need to to understand. The first being that we will never be able to be perfect. You will never be able to be perfect. I will never be able to be perfect. That's why Christ had to come. That's why Christ had to die, because we are sinners. But secondly, and I think this is crucial for us to hear and to understand, is that we are still to pursue holiness in our lives, though it will always be imperfectly. So even though I'm a sinner, that does not alleviate me from the responsibility to strive for holiness and to live in conformity to the Word of God. We often say phrases like, well, no one's perfect, as if that excuses our sin before God. Trust me, it does. Not. We are to live lives that are holy. Church, we will not be of much use for the kingdom of God if we are acting just like the rest of the world. We are to live lives of holiness. Because that's what Christ has called us to and has provided for us in the cross and in the giving of the Holy Spirit so that we now can live holy lives and we are also to live and serve God in a way that is acceptable to him right that that's interesting to think about that we can come to church and we can sit in our pew and we can seek to worship in a way that's unacceptable to God you ever stop to think about that that if we come here with self-motivating uh preferences that we're here only to to kind of check off our own box or because it makes us feel good or because we like the songs or we do this or our friends are here, then flat out that's not acceptable to God. Any reason to worship God other than God is unacceptable to God, right? Do you guys remember the story of Nadab and Abihu from the Old Testament? In Leviticus chapter 10, these were sons of Aaron. They were priests. They were set apart for that purpose. And they offered what's called an unauthorized incense or strange fire in some translations on the altar of God. They made their own mixture of incense. They offered it to God as uh, a sacrifice on his altar. And what does God do? God strikes them dead on the spot. And what is God's reaction to this? What does God say in defense of his actions, if you will? Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3 says, this is God speaking, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And we say, that's harsh, that's not fair. The two sons of Aaron didn't need to die. But God disagrees. Right When God speaks, we are to listen and obey. He will be glorified. He will be sanctified. He will be honored in the way that He deserves. And anything less is treason. It is cosmic treason. It is infinite treason against an infinite God. We must come to church with no thought to our own preferences, but focus solely on God. And if we don't do this, if we only care about our own desires, what works best for me, what I can get out of it, then we cannot be shocked when God doesn't move. We are to be devoted to Him. Not because we're we're scared He's going to strike us dead, but because He gave His life in our place. That is true worship as Paul describes it. We are to be completely devoted to God, but where do we begin in this? And this leads to our second point. We are only able to present our bodies as sacrifices to God when our minds have been renewed. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, he issues here two commands, one as a negative and one as a positive. Don't do this and do this instead. All right, He begins with the negative when he says to not be conformed to this world. Christians are not to live like the world, but are to live lives of holiness, just as we learned earlier we are to be distinct from the world and how we dress and what we listen to and what we watch and how we interact with one another how we act at work how we act at the store we are to be distinct set apart see we cannot be shocked again that the church is making little impact when we look and act just like the rest of the world you do not reach the world by being like the world but by being distinct from the world So we're not to be conformed to this world that is sinful, that is hostile to God. But how can we be distinct? He goes on to say, it is through the renewal of our minds. And the renewing of our minds takes place when we are consistently reading and meditating upon the Bible. Renewing our minds is exactly what I described earlier when I said that until we understand who God is, then we will continue to act like the world. So how do we have our minds renewed? We consistently and daily dig into his word with an eye to see who he is and what he has done. John Piper used an illustration once, and I think that's, it's a great illustration to describe this, how we, how we get the world out of our heads. He said, if you were to to have an empty glass, right, an empty glass in your hands, and you're asked, how how do you get the the air out of the glass? How do you get the air out of this empty glass? He says, some people, I'll I'll just put a vacuum over it, right? Put a vacuum in and just suck the air right out. He says, well, that's not going to work. So what's the best way to get the air out of an empty glass? You pour water in it, and it pushes the air out. So how do we get the world out of our heads and out of our hearts? Not by just trying to, to kind of white-knuckle, get it away from it, but instead by filling our heads and our hearts with something else, with something better, and that is the Word of God. We must start with our heads if it is to get to our hearts. We cannot live so, uh, love something truly that we're ignorant of. Okay, so it starts in our heads. It goes from heads to our hearts, right? We love the God that we know, but until we know God, we're not going to love Him. So it all begins with our head. So let me ask you, what if you resolved to read the Bible through every year? Just one, one time through every year. In five years, wouldn't you hopefully be able to say that you know God or God better than you would have if you hadn't made that resolution, Right? Don't you think as a church and as an individual you'd be better equipped to know the will of God for your life and for the life of this church if you were saturated in the word of God? Right? That's exactly what he's saying, right? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this only happens when our minds have been renewed by the word of God. As long as we remain superficial in our knowledge of God, then we will continue to be of little use. I don't know about you, but I want to bear fruit for the kingdom of God in this community. I want to see this church do wonders for God. Not because we're something, but because God is everything. But at the end of the day, if all we're doing is feeding people, helping people, and we don't give them the true spiritual bread, that is Christ, then it's all for naught, right? It's all for naught. So we must refocus our hearts and our minds on God. We must be transformed. And it's interesting that really, if I remember correctly, that this word that's used here for transformed is uh, only used three times in the New Testament. Once here, once in the Gospels, and then once in another place that you can write down. But I want you to see this. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul is saying there in 2 Corinthians the same idea he's saying here. You want to be transformed? Get a sight of God. Behold the glory of the Lord. Where do we see that? We see that in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, how can we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ? By reading and meditating and dwelling on His Word. So practically speaking, for us, there's just two things that we need to be doing. And again, these are things that it's almost cliche to say it, but it's not. We need to be reading our Bibles daily, digging in, dwelling on, thinking on who God is, and secondly, we need to be desperately praying to God. Because if all we do is read the Bible for head knowledge, and there's no, no movement from the head to the heart, then that serves us in no way at all. And that act from going the head to the heart is something that only God could do. And so we desperately pray. God, open my eyes to what you're saying in this text. I want to see your glory shining through. Because if you, if you don't, I will never be able to see it. And so we pray, and we read, and we seek the Lord, seeking to renew our minds daily, presenting our bodies to God at home, at work, at school, regardless of where we are, because this is our spiritual worship. And it all begins for us with the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I praise you for your word that we have it, and I pray that you would give us a desire, a hunger for your word above anything else. Father, that is something that only you can give And so, Father, I ask and pray for the glory of your name that you would and that we might be sanctified and be of use for you. We need you and we love you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.